Hello there, Nick. Hello there, Ethan. Um, welcome, everyone, to uh, episode three of Unexceptional Americans. Um, I'm Ethan Bird. I'm Nick Donahue. And um, I'd just like to give a few updates. Uh, first of all, I noticed listening to the, last, first, the first two episodes um, that uh, there's a bit of a problem with headphones, so I am now hopefully that will sound better. We'll see. We'll see what it sounds like when it's over, but uh, hopefully it'll be better. And uh, also, our podcast is now available on Breaker. I'm not really sure what that is, but if you use yeah, that, I've never used it, but uh, I've um, heard about it. So yeah, on if Radio Public. Yeah, if you're a weirdo, go ahead. Radio Public, Google Podcast, and of course, uh, the, the big one is Spotify. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we have not been able to get on Apple Music yet, which, of course, is a big market to tap into. But that takes a few weeks to approve. Unless, of course, you're, uh, you're Joe Biden, who started his podcast today on Apple with no problems. But uh, whatever. You know, there's different rules for different rules for big dogs like him. You know, big hairy leg men like big, him. But... Big men with hairy legs. <laughs> who, who Kids like to hop on my lap. They turn blonde in the summertime. They turn blonde. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, your podcast system. (laughs) We thought we would we would um take a break from poor old uh, Duncan on poor old Uncle Joe for today, and uh, Nick was uh, was going to give everyone an update on what's going on in Venezuela, which we haven't heard about for a while in the mainstream media, but it's still, of course, a country, and it's still, of course, you know, things going on down there. So Nick is going to fill us in. Yep, despite um. The best attempts and the, I'm not even sure we can call it the best effort of the Trump administration to do to Venezuela what has been done to God knows how many Latin American countries and how many other governments around the world. Venezuela still exists and its president is Maduro, the elected legitimate president of the country is still in charge and the Venezuelan state is still functioning. Um, of course, you may have seen, if you've seen anything about Venezuelan news, you might have just seen um, that Trump and his Justice Department have insanely put, I forget how many millions of dollars, but a bounty on his head for drug trafficking charges. Um, a former vice secretary of the UN came out. You may have seen Ben Norton or Mike uh, Max Blumenthal tweet about this because they're always all over this. Um, and, the only journalists who do the, you know, Abby Martin is also over this. There's a little cluster of anti-imperialist journalists who do very good coverage of what happens in Venezuela, who have actually been there. Full disclosure, I have not been to Venezuela. I know people who have lived there, and I'm a fan of the, and an avid follower of the journalists who have gone there and done honest reporting on it. Um, and... <clears throat> Uh, You might have seen this, that a vice secretary of the U.N. came out and said after years and years and years at the U.N. of being uh, very close to international drug policy when it comes to curbing narco-terrorism, I didn't have to hear once about Maduro, specifically as an individual, didn't have to hear about him once. The big, I think his other words were Colombia is the world's biggest supplier of cocaine and the U.S. is the biggest buyer, uh, which has been the case for a very long time. It's been the case since uh, Peru fell from being the number one uh, trafficker of cocaine, and which was decades ago. Uh, so that aside, um, which is silly and ridiculous, a side story really, um, you may have last seen the U.S.'s old buddy Juan Guaido hilariously trying to climb a fence to get into the National Assembly. Well, um, he was framing that. He and the U.S. media were trying to frame that as the Maduro regime, quote unquote, was keeping him out of assuming his rightful position as president of the National Assembly. Well, the problem is. But Guaido's own opposition, the faction that he was in charge of, abandoned him. After years of the National Assembly not having um, the member, the supporters of Maduro's party, the uh, PSUV party and the Greater Patriotic Pole Coalition, which it leads, um, they obviously 
have a president, but they don't have control over the National Assembly, and they haven't since 2015, after many years of them refusing to take their seats in the National Assembly due to the ongoing crisis, uh, they have finally agreed to, in order to facilitate a national dialogue between the opposition and the government, decided to retake their seats in the National Assembly with the agreement of basically the, the rest of the opposition leadership, with the exception of Guaido mainly because Guaido probably sees this as the end of the line of his career and of his ambitions to be president. Basically, he was only ever in that position because his mentor, the founder of his party and a scion of one of the most powerful and wealthiest families in Venezuela, a family that has been one of its richest families since the colonial times, Leopoldo Lopez Mendoza, um, since he's under house arrest for the fact that he incited riots that killed 13 people um, and therefore can't hold the political office, at least for a limited period of time, Guaido stepped in as his handpicked successor to lead the party, uh, Voluntad Popular. And uh, Voluntad Popular, of course, is one of the more extreme hard right parties that is dedicated to the to the um, strategy of tension to the strategy of inciting, trying to incite civil war-like conditions in the state or tensions of, within Venezuela in order to justify U.S. intervention, armed U.S. intervention, which they recognize is probably the only way to actually get rid of Maduro, as in U.S. soldiers actively coming in and killing him and then putting Guaido in power. Of course, the rest of the opposition, after seeing this strategy fail repeatedly since roughly 2012-2014, they have finally decided to give up and enter into talks and enter into diplomacy with the Maduro government after repeatedly sabotaging those all attempts before to do so. The opposition now, after taking its seat, um, and of course, they're beginning a new session. They've decided that they would elect a new president of the National Assembly. Guaido's term is up, as per the agreement amongst the parties that make up the opposition coalition. And, well, hilariously, he's now deciding that he doesn't even recognize his own opposition's authority over its own operations, his own party. He's now rejecting their decision to remove him as their leader. Uh, so that's what, and that's actually what was going on when he was in that embarrassing scene trying to scramble across the fence into the National Assembly building. It was police and security for the building that were removing him, while the opposition and the government's uh, members of the National Assembly were meeting together to begin discussing how to build a, some sort of recovery program and rebuild the country after years of economic warfare have ravaged it. <clears throat> That's basically the situation we're in now. Venezuela actually looks like it's in a better place than it has been in a very long time because the opposite, a lot of the opposition at least has basically decided we've tried overthrowing you violently as many times, you know, more times than we can count. This has been a running project for years now and we just haven't done it. Nothing's worked. The United States has imposed cripple, such crippling sanctions that our economy has effectively shrunk to the size of a peanut. And there's so much violence, there's enough violence and sustained violence on the streets in past years that the country looked like it was in the midst of a slow burning civil war. And yet nothing seemed good enough to spark some chain of events that would lead to Maduro's overthrow. And finally, after the opposition splintered itself by boycotting, by selectively boycotting some elections and participating in others, it finally resulted in the co-opposition's unity finally cracking apart. And now they have no choice but to negotiate, which they should have been doing from the beginning if they actually cared about Venezuelan democracy, popular sovereignty, and stability. So yeah. That's the situation there right now. That's the update on Venezuela. Things are actually yeah. looking up 
for the Venezuelan people and looking down for neocon war hawks in the United States and right-wing oligarchs in Venezuela. Well, that's good to hear. I think, um, you know, you did a pro job, job of playing it out there, but uh, I'll just say that except in very rare cases where there's, you know, very specific things that can be targeted, um, I think sanctions should be something that we move away from because they generally do not, even if the, you know, this is a whole, you know, dispute, the dispute thing, even taking that aside, like, even if it is a, like a legitimately bad government, the sanctions end up hurting the ordinary people of the country and end up making people, making people's lives worse. And um, that is something that the U S has done for a long time. I think if there's sanctions to be done, they should be done in a way that is targeted at just, you know, hurting the government. If there's like, you know, a specific thing that the government needs for the military, maybe, or if there's something that the government needs, um, like, you know, a supply of, you know, torture devices or something. That, that's like something that can be sanctioned. Arms embargoes, things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like a total economic sanction that we've seen imposed in Iran, too, that has really hurt them during the coronavirus. I mean, that is akin to warfare. Mm. It's just it's just done in a more sanctions subtle fashion. Sanctions are just another form of warfare. And the, that's and something I, everybody needs to take home. Yeah, and I think, I think we need to make that a as much of a rule as possible with very few exceptions that we need to stop doing that as a country and we need to stop trying to cripple the economies of people that disagree with us or our government. And that is um, something that's, I think is a huge, especially with the coronavirus, it's laying it out even more what's happened in Iran. What um, in some respects has happened to parts of China, obviously China's a very powerful country that can make a lot of stuff on their own, but the U S sanctions on China, that Trump imposed have certainly not helped them during this time, which has only hurt the people. You know, not it's not this is not toppling Xi Jinping or by any stretch, and it didn't even work toppling Maduro, who the U.S. wanted to see gone. Yes, and, the um, sanctions on. I would like to point out that the sanctions on Venezuela, um, as the lovely people at Pod Save America called it, they were designed to quote deny their ability to even have an economy. U.S. sanctions on Venezuela are literally robbing Venezuelans of their public property in here in the United States because they can't. We have blocked remissions, remittances, excuse me, remittances to be sent for that Venezuelans that are living and working in the United States can send back there. That's a it huge has, thing. It has shuttered Telesur English, which was what um, Abby Martin formerly worked for. Chris Hedges has worked for them. Valid, independent journalists, great journalists. Chris Hedges is a damn Pulitzer Prize and worked at the New York Times for over a decade, for crying out loud. And they were working at um, Telesur English, which was funded in part by the Venezuelan government. And because of the sanctions, Telesur English had to shut down. In part, these sanctions were an attack on free speech. Yeah, major, it, a major left-wing outlet for the whole Western Hemisphere was crushed by U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. In addition, of course, to uh, the sanctions on their vital oil industry that, uh, you know, basically said the the Venezuelan-owned oil distributor, Citgo, here in this country, was not allowed to send any of its uh, profits back to the Venezuelan government and were basically being forcibly held in U.S. banks here. And they were going to start giving that money, quote unquote, to Guaido's government, even though he, his government doesn't like have the ability to have a budget and doesn't have the ability to spend money on anything. Yeah. Um, but that is the nature of the sanctions, denying them their ability to have an economy. It is, it is sanctions are they are explicitly designed by the people who implement them in the State Department and the Treasury Department to immiserate the people of a target country to the point where they rise up or to soften up a target before a military strike. That is their only purpose because when you immiserate a people like that, there's a rally around the flag effect. It's what happened in Venezuela. Millions of people who aren't that enthusiastic about Duro did not want a very a guy who was clearly a puppet of the United States, like Juan Guaido, taking over the country, and they did not like the fact that the U.S. was trying to get them to change their government. Yeah, without asking the Venezuelan people first. Yeah, it's um, it's a really unfortunate situation, and the U.S. has you know supported these kinds of things 
you know, all over the world. And one of the, I, I, I shouldn't say my favorite, obviously, this is terrible, but one of the things that I always think of them, like the, like the quickest, and I've always found it's the most appalling example, the one I bring up the most of U.S. imperialism in the modern day is what happening, what's happening in Yemen and the blockade of Yemen that Saudi Arabian warships have gone around, that, that have uh, put on that country that um, is leading to a massive humanitarian crisis in there that's been going on since 2016, since Obama administration, and it continued through Trump. And no one is, uh, no one in the U.S. is really making much of a fuss about it, except for, you know, at, at um, various points in time, senators will bring forth bills to stop it. And I think the Congress may have passed a war powers resolution, but, um, but it was not, um, it was not, you know, enough of a majority to override Trump's veto or whatever, but they, mm -hmm. um, they were trying to stop and, you the, know, the genocide caucus. Yeah. Yeah. And Bernie Sanders, as we should call them, managed to block Bernie that. Sanders and Ro Khanna did excellent work on that. And Mike Lee, you know, is something, not something we, just, we agree with very often, but he, he did good work on that as well. Uh, yes. A Republican Senator who, I would say he's the only Republican senator you might ever get me to say a kind word about. Yeah. Um, or anything close to a kind word. Yes, yeah. A very critical kind word. <laughs> yes, for, for, for sure. But I think, as so, you know, someone out of Utah, I think he's someone that we would rather have there than Mitt Romney, for example. Um, yes, his counterpart now. Yeah, I think... Because I think Mike Lee is now the senior senator. Someone who, uh, yeah, is... Uh, and at least, yeah, he after Orrin Hatch, you know walking corpse basically left the senate um yes. yeah and uh but i i just like to draw a parallel because a sanction is not exactly a blockade but it is a you know a virtual it's blockade. A blockade on paper it's a blockade of paper and uh what you know we 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 wouldn't ever let the u.s itself be conducting a blockade but saudi arabia one of our closest allies in the region has done that we supported them wholeheartedly and what we've done to venezuela of course has also been been just awful and i think um Americans don't recognize that enough that, you know, our government does not give a shit about people in other countries. I, I think that's fair to say. Yes. And we, sh yes. And I would note as well, as you mentioned, Obama with Yemen, um, stuff going on in Venezuela obviously dates back to, well, the stuff going on, the attempts to overthrow the Venezuelan government date back to at least 2002 when George W. Bush was in power. But we should also note that the current phase of leveling this immense amount of sanctions on Venezuela to just destroy their economy began under Obama when he designated in a, an executive order, he erroneously designated Venezuela a quote-unquote national security threat to the United Which States. Which is ridiculous. <clears throat> ridiculous. Insanity. <laughs> and then he leveled, he used that as a justification to level sanctions um, individual, quote unquote, individual sanctions, which are supposed to be the nice, whereas you know, sanctions are supposed to be the nice form of warfare, um, and they're supposed to be the the application of quote unquote soft power rather than hard military power. Well, just like that, individual sanctions are supposed to be the soft side of sanctions, and they are not really. Uh, the sanctions on Venezuela, he they personally sanctioned. Basically, uh, Nicolas Maduro, the president, his entire family, and then his entire cabinet, almost all of its senior, senior and also junior um, ministers and officials, sanctioning them and all of their families, confiscating any assets that they had overseas or blocking access to them. And then in addition to that, it these sanctions greatly limited their ability to travel outside of the country. It's why, oddly enough, in the United States, um, you actually had the vice foreign minister being the guy who was coming here and uh, doing interviews with people like Abby Martin in the United States. And before, of course, he was blocked from entering the country as well. Um, and of course, there there is a dramatic effect on this because it meant that Venezuela's finance minister could not come to the United States to meet with representatives of private banks to whom Venezuela owned, owed money in order to refinance or renegotiate the terms of their debt. And that was one of the things that triggered um, the massive inflation crisis. So even individual sanctions can be incredibly harmful and dangerous. Yes, yes, for, for sure. Um, and... Um... 
uh, sorry, uh, Venezuela is not even a security threat to like Guyana or Colombia, I would say. So uh, the idea yeah. that they would threaten the United States is, is laughable. And the United States, you know, um, almost last year and in the years prior to that, invaded Venezuela. I know Trump flouted the idea many times. Um, yeah, Trump said all options are on the table. And then he explicitly included the military option, quote unquote, military option, as in invasion, which is illegal under international law. But then again, the United States clearly doesn't care about that. Yeah. And um, I remember, but I also remember that um, on the State of the Union address this year, Juan Guaido was was there. Uh, I remember. Yes, which was hilarious because him being removed from his position of leadership in the opposition, that was already in the works. (laughs) That was already happening. And the fact that the United States is just for some reason, it's that thing where Trump's stupidity, the incompetence comes in and you realize the the stupidity and incompetence of Donald Trump and the people around him is really what's holding them back from destroying the world. Uh, he doesn't seem to quite get that Guaido, in terms of horses you want to bet on, is out of steam yeah. and can't go any further. And they're still putting all their bets on him, even though he has absolutely no formal title or position at this point. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because like, the U.S. fixation with Venezuela is no, nothing new, but... Just the idea that they would that they would get us bogged down in another foreign war, but this one in you know well, much closer than the ones in the Middle East, like to us, is a country with an air force. Yeah, it's, for one thing. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just insanity. And thankfully they didn't do it. But you know you know I always say this. You know they they would do it the second that they thought that it, it could go over well with the public or that they could get away with it. And this is yes. They are they are they will not hesitate for a moment if they thought they could. They would invade every single country on the face of the goddamn earth. I, I, I just, just putting that out there. Yeah, if they could get away with yeah, it, yeah. they would probably they would probably conquer. The and world. they wouldn't even that have to probably John Bolton. They wouldn't dream. even have to, you know, use military force for a large por- portion of the world, especially the developed world. I mean, they could just, with the stroke of a pen, you know, demand that European uh, European countries and you know Canada, Japan, Australia hand over their sovereignty to us. And then they could go about using all of those militaries combined to wreak havoc on the developed world. They would probably, I mean, obviously, if they their dream scenario is a is a is a showdown with either Russia or China that will somehow somehow make our lives better. I don't know how, but it will it will somehow lead to a benefit for the United States to get into a a nuclear power war, even if it wasn't ended up if you didn't using nuclear weapons, which it probably would. But it, it, it somehow somehow it suits our interests to keep. Yeah, if nuclear weapons didn't exist, and for people that t- they would have, they would be going into someone like Trump would probably be going into China. Right and the now. thing is that people always talk about Russia and China's aggression, which is a whole other thing. I don't think we should, you know, we should be praising those governments because you know we want to take down our own. But but we had to start with ourselves. And China and Russia, you know, are Chinese are Chinese troops stationed on the Rio Grande? Are Russian troops in Vancouver? No. But our troops are in Estonia. They're in Ukraine. They're in um, Georgia. They're, Georgia, Azerbaijan, yeah. South Taiwan, Korea, Philippines. The Philippines. Yeah. Um, our, our we are Afghanistan, <laughs> Iraq. If you look at a map of military bases in the region, it's pretty clear that Chinese claims that the U.S. wants to encircle them, quote unquote, um, are are certainly certainly um, something to be considered, and uh, the U.S. U.S. military bases all over, and and in Iran as well. Like you look at the countries around Iran, the U.S. bases all over there. We have something like nine hundred to a thousand military bases outside of the U.S. It's ridiculous. Yes, it's absolutely insane, and entirely secretive, and therefore anti-democratic. Small D democratic. Yes, yes, certainly. And um, at this point, I think we should move on to the next topic. So uh, stick with us. All right, we're uh, we're back here on the on the uh, third episode of Unexceptional Americans. We just wrapped up our discussion on um, Venezuela and a larger discussion on U.S. imperialism 
And now we're going to get into a very a story that maybe uh, has gone under under the radar of many people, which uh, you can't can't say I blame them because of what everything's going on in the world today. But something nothing something that's disheartening and something that we should be outraged about nonetheless, which is in the middle of the coronavirus, in the middle of all of this. Trump's Secretary of the Interior has ordered the Mashpee Wampanoag Reservation in Massachusetts disestablished. Mm-hmm. They're finally doing it. They're finally getting to the point. And by that, I mean the settler colonial state, the shadow white supremacist part of our government that <clears throat> has been trying for decades maybe since the beginning of the reservation system to undo the reservation system. Because the moment we gave them all that land, we, did, we discovered, oh, crap, there's a whole bunch of minerals there. <laughs> there's a whole bunch yeah. of value to be extracted from there. And it's basically a, an act of privatization, of enclosing a new commons. Yeah, yeah, it is... Um... Certainly, certainly nothing that's nothing that's benefiting anyone. That's you know, in the even among like obviously every every white person in America is product of this you know unfortunate um, colonization that took place. But even among those people, even among the or I mean, black people obviously were brought here against their will, but they are also not natives, um, etc. But the working people of this country are not going to be the ones seeing the benefits from these actions. And it's no. going to be the, it's going to it be the corporations. It does not benefit anybody other than large corporations. As you yeah, and these are the people that are continuing to absolutely, you know, ravage our natural resources, which, you know, we have to be thankful because this country, um, well, I shouldn't say this country, I'm in Canada right now, but both countries, but especially the United States. Both, this applies to both, yeah, I would are, say. Are, um, are blessed to be on such, you know, vast reserves and natural resources and very beautiful territory. And, you know, there's so many parks in both Canada and the U.S. that are just absolutely gorgeous. And we have, you know, some of the cleanest water in the world, you know, before we polluted, of course, like where I'm from in Ohio, Lake Erie has been totally gone, totally gone to shit because of that, um, of the pollution by large companies that did not care. And we need to be, we could take a lesson a huge lesson from the Native Americans in the way that, you know, land and the, the earth is conserved. And even not, not even going that far, but from, you know, previous um, administrations, other countries, like the current trend since I would say about the 1980s on the environment and especially with the Trump administration. And, but we should not forget that Trump is not unique here. The Bush administration, the Reagan administration, all of these, Republican governments have been trying to do the same thing for years and Republican state and local governments have been gutting, gutting environmental protections and gutting land that is um, meant to be, you know, meant to be sacred, not just sacred in the sense that the tribes, the Native American tribes, Native American nations, as we should be calling them, um, Native American nations value them in a religious sense, but also they're sacred to us because they are important to, you know, our children's future and our future. And, um, it's really disheartening to see just the the extraordinary consensus on the environment in Washington under the neoliberal order we lived on for the we lived, we lived under I should say for the past forty years has been you know one of for the Democrats very milk toast mild um, regulations of some of the most heinous they, they'll they'll outlaw some of those heinous practices by these corporations but they will not you know, totally restructure the economy to be more eco-friendly, like the Green New Deal is calling for. They will not, you know, continue to preserve all of the natural resources that we already set aside. I mean, we have, we've already developed so much of this land. We, it would be wise to set aside, you know, what we've already, what we've already set aside. It would be wise to keep that set aside for, you know, environmental protection. And it was worth noting that Obama opened up the um, Alaskan, National Wildlife Refuge to oil drilling. Yeah, he opened up Anwar. That story Anwar, yeah. I find hilarious. When he opened Anwar up to um, to oil exploration, uh, 
he was lobbied to by oil corporations. And then I believe it was either Exxon or Shell was sending one of their rigs up there into the Arctic Ocean part of it um, to drill for oil directly underwater. Um, those these big the big oil rigs have to be put on barges before you know they can be set down in the water, and they stupidly the barge hit an iceberg, and the rig literally just slid right off the the barge into the water and sunk into the water, <laughs> like was just permanently destroyed by this crash. And immediately afterwards, whatever oil company it was, I can't remember if it was Exxon or um, Shell, uh, they immediately went to Obama and said, hey, dude, um, if you keep the high north area open to oil exploration, it's unfair to us because we just had it. We just made an oopsie and everybody else would get an advantage on us because now they know not where to sail through. So okay. we're going to be we're going to be behind the curve and that's anti-competitive. And Obama said, oh, well, yep, you are right. Um, and then he closed Anwar to oil exploration, uh, put it oh, back yeah. to its previous status uh, because of uh, the requests of corporate power, not because um, environmentalists were making a big fit out of it. Yeah. And um, Obama also. And we should keep in mind that. Um, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but we should keep in mind that um, in the 70s, Richard Nixon was actually better on the environment than Obama. Nixon is the guy who created the EPA. Signed the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts. Signed those acts, who did all of that because he was scared shitless of the actual environmental movement at the time. Not to mention that. On the case, because now we're getting a little off the topic of what's happening with the Moshby here, people like him for years now, not just Nixon, but other presidents, all had to recognize to some degree the sovereignty of Native Americans because there was a powerful movement amongst Native peoples and Native nations for self-determination, represented by AIM, the American Indian the American Indian movement and the red power uh, movement that was mirrored um, off of the black power movement. They were armed, they were organized, well-organized and they were militant. In some cases they were armed and they engaged in open confrontation with the U S federal government and in Canada as well with the Canadian federal government. Um, I know Justin Trudeau, they held, they held them to account. Yeah. And then, of course, we all went through the COINTELPRO phase where those movements fell apart. And ever since then, they've been able to run roughshod over the reservations. Yeah, I know Justin Trudeau has had a terrible record of the reservations, just to put that out there for anyone who's still, who still is uh, any liberal women who are still, you know, frothy at the mouth over him, even with his new beard and everything. I don't know. I don't really get the appeal. But, you know, I just want to point out that he has a terrible record on the environment and on the Native Americans reservations. He's put pipelines through the reservations. He's um, he's uh, led. He's um, you know done nothing and neglected the situation in um, central Canada and the prairies, which is um, where I think a lot of a lot of Native women have been basically sexually abused and murdered by you know white officials and other Native men and stuff. And that has gone. That is there was a federal commission on it or something. And I'm not exactly clear on the facts of that case. So don't quote me, but I know Trudeau was majorly criticized for his, you know, negligent role in that situation. And um, Trudeau was basically just Canadian Obama. Like that's a pretty clear, clear cut um, comparison we can draw here. And I know uh, Obama endorsed him in last year's election, even though, you know, Obama has hilariously, uh, blamed the entire 2016 election loss on Russia and said we should not let foreigners interfere in our elections. But he feels no he feels no responsibility to do the same when he comes to interfering in our in our neighbor to the north uh, their elections and um, or in any other election around the world which he has probably or which he has interfered in directly or indirectly as well. And yeah, it is uh, that that's beside the point. But I know that. The uh, official reason that was given for the disestablishment of the Wampanoag Reservation, going back to that story, was that they were not sure 
if um, the government said that they were not, or they not they were not able to be clear over whether or not the tribe um, tribe counted as Indian under the Indian Act of 1934, um, which is just of ridiculous. Um, and and think- also an ex- another brilliant example of how a race is constructed by means of policy. Yeah, yeah, that's a very, very great point. And um, I know this this reservation, I believe, was um, was uh, based what was uh, uh, recognized in 2007. Um, it looks like there's an existential crisis for all tribes. Tribes, I don't know why I said tribes. All tribes federally recognized after 1934 because um, they're actually enforcing this this decision now. This I don't. Know, I'm going to have to do some reading on this, but the ridiculous. It, it appears I would I would disagree with this. The Supreme Court ruling, 2009, Carceria v. Salazar, v. Salazar. Are you familiar with that, Nick? I just. I am. Not personally. It says, it says but... which established the federal government cannot take land into trust, which means like establishing a reservation essentially for yeah. tribes that weren't under federal jurisdiction, quote unquote, in the year 1934. Which I don't understand how how that is like an accurate reading. I don't know if that's like how they are interpreting the law that, that we can't make new reservations because if it wasn't established in 34, then we can't. I, I, I fail to see how that is justified, but that is what the Supreme Court said, and that's the justification for the Department of the Interior's move to basically strip this tribe of their land. And the idea that they're not... Yeah, a, a rather, I would say, controversial Supreme Court decision to basically treat um, a whole a whole host of Native American reservations to basically say, well, since we didn't recognize you, you know, at a time when Jim Crow was still a thing, we um, are going to, you know, just take all your land back. We're just going to take it away from you. We're just going to, we, we gave, we quote unquote gave it to you, even though they've been living there since before white people got here. Yeah, I've been here for thousands <laughs> Before of white people were called white people. Yes, for thousands of years, we're just going to take it. We're saying it's ours and we're taking it quote unquote back. Yeah. And um I mean I'm not I'm not um obviously an expert in the Wampanoag, but I've heard that name before in history classes the the tribe that the pilgrims were involved with. So I think that to say that these people aren't really Native Americans is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> Just because Yes, we know the Wampanoag are one of the most historically significant tribes in the colonial history of New England. They were allies with the colonists at one point. They went to war with the colonists. They have a long history of um, both friendship and resistance. And hopefully that resistance part lives on because they cannot allow this to happen. Also, um, it, it's it's an, literally an existential crisis for all the people that live there. I'd just like to point out the uh, the senators Massachusetts Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren released a joint statement describing the Trump administration as playing craven political games and saying that um, disestablishment of the Mashpee Wampanoag Reservation would reopen a shameful and painful chapter of American history, etc. But I would just like to point out that for Elizabeth Warren, you know, this is a an interesting dynamic because of her claim to be Native American for years, abusing, abusing and, and her, uh, her identity and it's her alleged identity. It's not even about that, you know. That whole thing is that that took away a position from an actual woman of color at Harvard, who you know, and that and it allowed yes. Harvard Law to say that they had a woman of color who I believe she was the first one at the time, which is just I mean. I mean, ridiculous. And also I would point out that um, Elizabeth Warren's, I think it was her grandfather, actually killed a Native American man in Oklahoma. Really? <laughs> um, and that is, that's like documented because it was written down in the newspapers there at the time. That was, um, he's, I think, I forget the full story, um, but I've heard... Uh, Brace Belden relate this story on the True Anon podcast about how, um, and no, this was not Brace Belden trying to be goofy. This was him telling an actual story <laughs> um, of how 
you know, despite the fact that once again, Elizabeth Warren has all these, has this huge elaborate story that she tells about um, her supposed uh, native ancestry, which she can never get the tribes right. She can never get the nations right. She can never keep anything straight or consistent. For, first, her mother was part Creek in Delaware, and that's why they couldn't get married. Then she's part Cherokee. Those are a bunch of different groups. Those are different groups of people. In um, different areas, too. Of, of... Uh, in different er- who originated in different areas of the country, who lived in different parts of Oklahoma when they were relocated to the uh, Indian Territory. Um, under Martin Van Buren. Um, it just doesn't, so the story never made any sense. And she has all this elaborate history, and yet you can never find anything that confirms it on paper. Yet, of course, you can find on paper um, confirmation that uh, her story about her parents not be, having to elope was a total lie. <laughs> and you can also find in pa- on paper a story about her grandfather shooting and killing a Native American man who was called, who was basically, I think he was called something like a red drunk or something like that. Uh, the guy who is, who her grandfather shot. Um, it was some sort of alcohol was somehow involved in the feud that led to the shooting, which was legal at the time. It was considered not illegal. He didn't really go to jail for it. <laughs> that is insane. Yeah, there are very old and strange laws that are, in some cases, I think, maybe still on the books in certain states, certain Plains states. I remember uh, my I had friends who were really into uh, that weird laws, weird state laws website. And there's one, I think, from one of the Dakotas, where if you saw more than three Sioux on a street, you could shoot one of them. <laughs> what the fuck? And it's like a law from the 1880s when, like, if you if you saw more than three in quote you know Indians in a place together, um, you were allowed to eliminate one of them because too many of them was a danger. That is that is back when they were actively at war in the Dakota Territory with the Sioux tribes. Jeez, that is yeah, they're insane. The the genocidal history of the United States towards Native Americans. It really gets into some strange and odd places. And like, you know, we managed to bring Elizabeth Warren into it. It just goes to show that this implicates this history is so long and so expansive that it implicates to some extent or another, almost all of us. Yeah, that is certainly true. Um, And I just want to say one more thing before we move on to the other environmental story um but i would uh, close this segment with um just uh, an interesting observation that i made is that elizabeth warren um who is t- talking uh, and ed markey to a lesser extent too of course he's in a primary right now it's pretty tough against joe kennedy the third so i would encourage which it's insane that that is tough that that is a tough primary joe kennedy has none of the charisma of any of the other members of the Kennedy family and all of the stupidity. You know, Mark, you know, half the good Mark Pocan endorsed him, which I thought was interesting because he's the, he's the, um, co-chair. Yeah. And he's Bernie. He should be on big Bernie Bernie guys, the Wisconsin campaign leader for Bernie Sanders. Um, I don't know why I did that. I'll look, I'll look into that. But um, I'd like to point out that both those senators, you know, uh, have talked a big talk about, you know, supporting Native Americans and supporting other progressive causes. So this is just like a microcosm of their larger. But they have not endorsed Bernie Sanders or done anything. And Elizabeth Warren, of course, actively herded Bernie Sanders' campaign. And um, he's the one candidate that would do anything for Native Americans at this point. I mean, if you think, if you think – who has an actual? If you think yeah, Joe Biden's going to lift Biden a even finger, like acknowledges they still exist. Yeah, if you think Joe Biden's going to lift a finger to help any native cause, you are sorely mistaken. Joe Biden was, Joe Biden was vice president for the Standing Rock crisis. Yeah, exactly. I, Elizabeth Warren never showed up, and Bernie Sanders so, showed Rock. up. Bernie Sanders showed up. Like Bernie he, Sanders like he always has. showed up. That is, yeah, he is. Oh, yes. That 
that is always a point to remember. Standing Rock happened under the watch of the Obama-Biden administration. And hopefully we can get similar levels of resistance from the Bosch P. Wampanoag tribe. Yes. Yes, that would be, uh, that's fascinating to see. And then see with these new, quote-unquote, emergency measures that are in place, if the uh, Trump administration will, you know, resort to violence, I would not be surprised. I know, um, not, yes. not, this is not a topic we were planning on covering today, but I know a quick, just a quick mention that in Hungary, um, did you see this? Uh, that the president of, or whatever is prime minister of Hungary, uh, Orban, has been Orban, granted yes. sweeping emergency powers to basically be a dictator in that country, which is a leader that Trump admires and, a, and um, uh, you know, a, a mainstream, quote-unquote, member of the EU, I'm pretty sure. Um, yes, and, a person uh, who's, uh, whose career definitely served as a preface to, you know, Trump. And the rise, the rise of the fascist. Johnson to Bolsonaro. Yeah, and... The rise of the clown fascists. And, uh, yeah, that is scary stuff coming out of Hungary for um, those pe- for people that live there. But, um... Yes, expect that stuff to be coming yeah. everywhere. We can do a whole other thing on that one yeah, day, too. sure. That is, that is important to uh, keep in mind. All right, let's uh, move into the next and uh, final segment for this episode. All right, and we're, and we're back. Um, just finished this discussion of uh, Native American issues and um, In- you know, and the environment and the environment. And uh, we're going right back into the environment here with the uh, story of the Trump administration um, and what the Guardian has called an extraordinary move, signaling to U.S. companies they will not face any sanctions for polluting the air or water during the coronavirus pandemic. They are flat out allowing companies to break pollution laws, even the laws that they haven't dismantled yet. Um, that is, that is extraordinary. And there is no yes. set. There is no, it's insane. Yeah. There is no <laughs> end date set for the dropping of this enforcement. That's important, you know, because a lot of the measures that the government has put in place for the coronavirus, they've said, you know, temporarily, of course, we have to see, but they said, you know, we're going to have a social yeah, Legally, this can't be permanent. So they always yeah. have to say this is temporary. But but it's really fun when you say something's temporary, which means it'll end one day, but you have no end date. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what will happen if, um, if Trump is reelected, perhaps he will just, you know, never mention this again. He doesn't have to do anything anymore. He doesn't have to, you know, fight anything. He can just say this temporary order never expires. So they haven't put an expiration date on it now. And they're, they're hoping that nobody will notice um, because of the coronavirus and everything. But this is this is outrageous. I mean, like, yes, it's literally the EPA saying we're not going to do our jobs. This is literally their job. They are the Environmental Protection Agency. Their job is to enforce environmental protection laws and to develop regulations under those laws and enforce those regulations. And they're saying, we're not going to enforce those. Unfortunately, it looks like under Trump, they're... they've been more of a polluter protection agency, unfortunately. Yes. But yeah, that is... we, well, yeah, we sh- this is a long history. This is a long time coming here where first he puts Scott Pruitt in, who as attorney general of Oklahoma <laughs> threatened to, um, he he took the EPA to court several times when they were trying to uh, impose regulations on fracking companies in Oklahoma. And mind you, Oklahoma the fracking companies in Oklahoma got to the point where the the EPA did so little to them. They took such a light touch that they fracked the state to the point where they are getting upper half of the Richter scale earthquakes. In a state that is in the middle of the tectonic plate, that is, that is insane. Oklahoma is <laughs> smack dab in the middle of the North American continental plate. There is no fault line there. There is not a, especially at least not a fault line that should be producing earthquakes that get up to like a seven, <laughs> and they are getting those. 
earthquakes that are shattering, you know, these dusty little uh, farming towns in Oklahoma that are shaking them to the ground and poisoning all their water. (laughs) My God. And the guy who was responsible of making sure that that happened, the Attorney General of Oklahoma, Scott Pruitt, became head of the EPA for the first two years before, you know, he got caught using his spending his work time trying to like sell his house for over a million dollars or something like that something weird and bizarrely corrupt taking bribes and whatnot i guess uh let's which look shamed him into resigning let's look at who's in charge right now the current current gem um uh andrew r wheeler who um uh it looks like this this for once the democrats did a, did something right because it says here that his um his position was confirmed by a 52-47 vote in the Senate. So it doesn't look like any Democrats defected there. Um, but I'm sure he's... Fortunately. He, he was acting administrator after Scott, after Scott Pruitt resigned. And then he, um, he... And a little bit on his career is that he... he um, uh, the current guy, Andrew R. Wheeler, uh, he was a as a lawyer represented a coal magnate yes and worked as he was and worked as basically a coal lobbyist yeah uh, and there was and ne- oh and he worked with james inhoff who yeah. is known for thinking climate who i'm pretty sure is the guy who brought that snowball onto yeah. the senate floor yeah, that is and him. said it's snowing outside how can we have global warming what a yeah, fanatic. He is. He has Disgusting. argued in terms of rules that are tricky, in terms of like saying they're for scientific reasons, but undermine the EPA's ability to do pretty much anything, like a transparency rule where you need to make all the raw data available to the public, but that's not really possible with a lot of the personal and confidential information available, which pretty much every scientific and medical associates in the country opposed. And he argued for another rule that says the EPA has to use double-blind studies, but double-blind studies don't usually apply to environmental impact. So he's basically just in there to totally kneecap anything the EPA could do to do anything um, reasonable to uh, to combat climate change or do anything to hurt the environment. He said he believes that man has an impact on the climate, but what's not completely understood is what the impact is. You know, if you can't understand what the impact is, maybe you shouldn't be the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. If you're not going to protect the environment, if you don't think there's any need to protect it, why are you trying to get a job at the Environmental Protection Agency? And that is a good question to ask. But I think, honestly, we all know the answer. Yeah, yeah, so that yeah. they destroy it from the inside out. They're going to gut it. He's been gutting the EPA. We've seen what Trump already did to the CDC. Yes. We saw that he destroyed the CDC through budget cuts, just demolished the thing, eliminated its entire pandemic monitoring and response team, fired all of them took its budget away and we're seeing we're seeing the same thing happen to the epa and right now he's saying hey epa you're all off the clock yeah no no you don't have to do anything right now it's like sit yeah i don't know why i don't know why i don't i don't understand what what his just what the justification is to be shutting debt basically shut you know furloughing the epa the entire agency during um a pandemic. I don't get what the connection is. I don't get what the actual excuse is. Yeah, because that that is literally telling a government agency don't do the job that you're mandated to do under the law. Yeah, I mean, uh, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, like the, the people that this administration are picking. Like, I'm just, I'm just gonna say, like, you know, they pick they pick bankers to be the Treasury. They pick people who you know support torture and threat the CIA. Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State. Secretary of Defense, you know, I don't even know who he is, but he's probably some, probably some whack job. You know, the, the Attorney General is probably a prosecutor in these administrations that has done, you know, locked up tons of black. Well, Bill kids. Barr, who's the secret, who's the Attorney General, is actually um, the guy who was in charge of covering up Iran Contra. Yeah, <laughs> and is a huge proponent of unitary executive theory, which is basically the idea that. The Constitution gives license to dictatorship, which is not true and ridiculous. Yeah, there's tons. There's just so many lobbyists in the administration 
for the industries that they're trying to, you know, quote unquote, regulate, you know, big agriculture CEOs for the Secretary of Agriculture, big CEOs for commerce and, you know, labor people that, you know, help corporations to, you know, skimp on wages, you know, health and human services is someone from the insurance industry. And then HUD is somehow Ben Carson. Um, I don't know. Another person who clearly who is probably the best analogy to what's going on with the EPA right now, because Ben Carson, as we know, had that embarrassing thing where he did not know what an REO is to the point where he had never heard the abbreviation before, clearly. So he, he thought um, Representative Katie Porter was saying Oreos <laughs> and then sent her a pack of Oreos because to, to help play it all off as a joke. Um, <laughs> I forgot about that, but yeah, that is that was, you know, terrifying but and i would say um we the uh when it could you mentioned secretary of defense earlier um the first secretary of defense under donald trump was uh we all know general mattis who was who was a war criminal who was, was lauded absolute neoliberals who can who committed the absolute atrocity he was responsible for the absolute atrocity of Fallujah, where they reduced the city to rubble and then rounded up the male population and organized them into a gulag-like forced labor system. And he, he, he oversaw and permitted and probably ordered the deployment of chemical weapons like white yeah. phosphorus and depleted uranium and allowed psychopaths like Chris Kyle to murder children with abandon in the streets of Fallujah. Um, absolutely destroyed an entire city in Iraq, killed hundreds of thousands of people. And he was given the nickname Mad Dog for it, for a reason. Um, that was Trump's first Secretary of Defense, a uh, war criminal psychopath. And then his second one was the guy who was acting Secretary, Patrick Shanahan, who literally worked for... <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure he worked for Raytheon was the company he worked for. Boeing. He worked for Boeing. Um, the one of the largest military contractors, if not the largest, he was an executive for them. And the current guy is a defense contractor lobbyist, Mark Esper. <laughs> yes. They are all who worked for, he was Raytheon's top lobbyist. The current guy was Raytheon's top lobbyist. Uh, so we had war criminal, uh, we had war criminal Boeing lobbyist, Raytheon lobbyist. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty pretty terrible that the people that are in charge of regulating these, you know, industries and regulating like the abuses of power, whether it's by corporations or by the military, the, the overse- institutions that are most prone to abuse. Yeah, it's like um, it's like saying like. Uh, let the, let the fox watch the hen house or something. I don't know. That's the expression? Yes, that's the expression. Yeah, yeah like that is, exa- that is the governing principle, if there is one, of the Trump administration is, you know, let's let these abuses of corporate military power go totally under, unchecked. And let's, if anything, let's do what we can to aid them in their exploitation of people here and abroad. And resources, people and resources here and abroad. It's... um terrible stuff and the coronavirus as you know anyone with half a brain could probably predicted is going to be used and i think we're just seeing the beginning of it as an excuse for anything that the people in power in various countries various states want to get done you know especially now that we've you know they've, they've constructed their response to the crisis itself they've, they've they've put all these social distancing measures in place they've tried to do all that stuff they have that laid out. Now they're they're going to see what can we use this for? Can we use this to... And in the midst of this... Yeah. Yes. In the midst of this global pandemic, all attention is on the pandemic. Exactly. Nobody's looking at the other things. This is Naomi Klein's shock doctrine 101. It's, yeah. Precisely. This is like... Like it hurt. Like people may think, what the heck does the EPA... Like I was saying earlier, like I was be- expressing like, I don't know what the, ex- the confusion. Like what is... Um, the excuse here. What is the justification? What reasoning is the administration using? And it doesn't really matter because, I mean, what did Republicans get away with in New Orleans in the wake of Katrina? They privatized every single school. There is not one public school left in Katrina, in New Orleans. There is no New Orleans 
public education system anymore. It is all charter schools or private schools. Every single one, every single school, every single student is in a private institution. What did that have to do with Hurricane Katrina? Or what did that have to do with anything that had to do with disaster relief, with hurricane relief? It had absolutely nothing. It had, that, it had jack shit to do with anything that had to do with a hurricane. But they did it anyways because no one cared. No one was paying attention. Everyone was focused on the fact that the city just got flooded and that a bunch of people were dead. So nobody was looking while, you know, Mike Pence wrote that memo saying in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, this is the list of things we can get away with, when, which he was a memo he wrote when he was in the House at the time. Oh, my God. Um, and that defines the shock doctrine. that We are in the midst of a massive natural disaster. Everyone's attention is being drawn to that. No one is looking at the man behind the curtain. And... The man behind the curtain is, as you said, literally just sticking a fox into the hen house and letting him go wild. <laughs> it's like it's like sticking a rabid, it's like sticking sticking like a rabid honey badger or wolverine into like a wolverine with rabies into the hen house. <laughs> That's a perfect, perfectly graphic and perfect way to put it. But um, yeah, and I think like uh, the. The fact is that people, they want you to be scared. They want you to think that you can't stand up for anything because of this virus. They want you to think that, you know, they want, and I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't take it seriously. That's not, that's not what I'm trying to say. We should be afraid to some degree of what's, what can happen. But, like, they want you to, they want you to weaponize. It's not that they want you to be afraid because everyone's always afraid of certain things. They want to weaponize people's fears to get the, done their policy objectives. Same thing happened to 9-11. They convinced everyone that they were, that the next, the next terrorist attack would be on their hometown. The next terrorist attack is going to be on a on a country fair or county fair, sorry, in Indiana. The next terrorist attack is going to be on some amusement park in Texas. If we do, if we, if if we, we don't, don't fight them there, we have to fight if, them. Yeah, and if we don't, not not just that part, which is a whole disgusting thing that they use that nine eleven as excuse a for, whole but at home lie. they use that as an excuse for monitoring everyone's communications, for stripping everyone in airports, for just randomly checking, quote unquote, randomly checking, you know, every minority person that goes through an airport in this country. They they are used all of those things as excuses, you know. They um, they have is listen listen to uh, one of the one of the greatest rappers there is, Immortal Technique. He said, listen to his song "Cause of Death." He says, you know, without nine eleven, um, uh, he says something. Now that I think back, without nine eleven, Rumsfeld, you couldn't have that war in Iraq. That's true. Yeah, he said without I where he was saying like where he basically the whole song is basically him describing the list of things that the Bush administration got away with and used nine eleven as an and excuse. And Iraq for. had nothing to do with nine eleven. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, Iraq had Iraq had nothing to do with nine eleven. Yet everybody was in a war fever already because of and 9/11. who and Bush and just who, said here's somebody to blame. Here's somebody. And to go who after. went along with all of that was Joe fucking Biden. I yes, just, unfortunately, to bring it Just to it tie it all him, in, yes. He, just to tie everything in. He... Who went along with every part of that? Was Joe Biden. Esta- who was there along the way? Joe Biden and establishment Democrats as a whole. Um, were, were there along for the ride. And Hillary Clinton. That in, and that's... Nancy Pelosi. And that's kind of happening right now. Why? Why aren't any of them... Going out, if Joe Biden really wants to lead the country right now, he should be going out there and saying, Donald Trump is not, is, is, blah, is, tell, is furloughing their EPAs, telling them not to do anything. He should be going out there making a big stink about that right now. Yeah. Every single one of them should be a press conference for all of them. Nancy Pelosi, there should be a whole press conference right now saying what Trump's doing with the EPA right now is unacceptable. And there is, that's just not going to happen, unfortunately, I don't think. Um, yeah, and I was just I was just looking at this um, voting voting record. Uh, the um, I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, was it not Nancy Pelosi voted for the voted for the Patriot Act? A lot of Democrats did. Adam, Adam yeah, she didn't vote for the Iraq War, but she voted for everything else that they were using. Adam Schiff, justify Maxine Waters, all of these people that are quote unquote you know heroes of of uh, Democrats now. Like, I mean, these people, they all voted for 
Patriot Act is Nancy Pelosi's name not on here? I'm looking at uh, Gov Trash. She voted for it. Yeah. And she's supported it the entire time. She's from California. Um, Come on. Where, where is she? Am I blind? <laughs> um, oh, yeah. There she is. Either yes. way. Yes. Uh, yeah. She voted yes. Um, yeah. And when it comes to the rap war, as we know, she um, openly acknowledged that she knew at the time that the intel was a lie, but that she didn't think that lying us into a war was an impeachable offense. Yes. When in reality, it's a crime against humanity. Yeah. It's... The Nazis did that. Yeah. And we and after they did that, we wrote laws. We wrote international laws after the Nuremberg trials and said, after after we forced the Nazis to reveal that they started the invasion of Poland on false pretenses, we said this can never happen again. Wars of aggression are illegal. No civilized nation should engage in them. And it's even worse if you lie to do it. Yeah, and I... I and as opposed yeah. to seems to think that that crime against humanity is not an impeachable offense for a president to commit. It's ridiculous. And uh, just for the sake of accuracy, I should note that I misspoke... Uh, I misread the uh, the list. Maxine Waters did not vote for the Patriot Act uh, to her credit, but Adam Schiff most certainly did, um, as you yes, can probably expect. Intelligence community freak. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Adam Schiff, who uh, many Democrats at the impeachment hearings were clamoring to run for president in 2020, if not 24. So he is, a quote unquote, one of these other rising stars of the Democratic Party. Uh, that He's chair of the intelligence community of the intelligence the community. darling Don't, of the uh, neoliberals. I mean, don't underestimate where he might, what post he might end up getting in the yeah. in a Biden administration, in a potential Biden administration. Today's Adam Schiff is tomorrow's Pete Buttigieg, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> God, that just made me. Uh, that was that was a terrible sentence. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. All right. I uh, I've I have nothing else to add. Uh, Nick, do you want to say say any last words? Or... Um, all I gotta say is, um, I've I've now recommended two things: reading the Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein and uh, listening to Cause of Death by Immortal Technique. Then again, I'd always recommend reading Naomi Klein and listening to uh, Technique. Yeah, for sure. Right on, man. All right, um, we right will uh, post another episode soon or soonish, and we'll uh, thank you guys for listening to episode three of the Unacceptable Americans and uh, stay safe out there. Stay safe. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.